I think that would be extraordinarily dangerous. Hey, guess what? There's crazy Germans in this episode. I'm Kevin Leeson. If you like Burt Reynolds sharks and people dying from floods, you're going to love this episode. Because I'm Graham Elwood. We're off to see the damage, the horrible damage of Oz. I'm Torn Atkinson. Okay, we got to ship this radioactive dirt back to the set. We need it. I'm Joe Fulgham, and this is Caustic Soda. It's the Caustic Soda Podcast! Yay! It's time to set the mics up. It's time for Tales of Woe. It's time to take the red pill on the Caustic Soda Show. It's time to do our research, unless your name is Joe. It's time to load the wiki on the Caustic Soda Show. To introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. So it makes me very hungry to introduce to you, Graham Elwood! But now let's get things started. Why don't you get things started? It's time to get things started on the informational, aberrational, strangulational, nauseational strap in for the Caustic Soda Show! Film tragedies. So we're going to talk today about what happens on film sets when things go wrong. I guess mm. what people don't really realize, I think, in the general public, a film set is really an industrial workplace. You've got heavy machinery. It's not just glitter got, and glamour? Yeah, it's like everybody knows it sees <laughs> the red carpet and the uh, the glitterati and the snapping of the photos and the, you know... I uh, thought it was all just uh, cocaine and fluffers. <laughs> that, too. And who, who is that on the line? That's a different episode oh, we'll be talking about. I'm sorry. I, I haven't been introduced yet. Uh, we've I got, think it's Graham Elwood. I think you're right. From ComedyFilmNerds.com. What's going on on ComedyFilmNerds.com? We've had a lot of exciting business going on. Um, We're just about to release our year-end episode. I'm not sure when this is going to air, but... And we have a book coming out, The Comedy Film Nerd Guide to Movies, which will be out in the spring. That's exciting. uh, We've got 13 writers... um, Contributing for like 25, 26 chapters of all different genres of movies. Um, and then each chapter ends with like a 10 best and 10 worst of that genre. And it's like, it's what we do. It's funny and informative. So from my understanding of listening to your podcast, you have a staff of people who go out and watch movies. And you, who's the other host? I'm sorry. Chris Mancini. Chris Mancini. You guys also watch movies and you just talk about them. Yeah, that's basically what we do. You know, we started the site uh, about four years ago and with um, just stand-up comedians writing, you know, funny movie reviews. And because Chris and I are both filmmakers ourselves and stand-up comics. And all of our fans were like, why don't you guys, you know, start your own podcast? Because Chris and I were constantly being guests on other people's podcasts like Never Not Funny and Doug Loves Movies and stuff like that. And so we just started to do a podcast about two years ago, and it's it's a blast. And also before we get started, I want to, to mention that uh, I listened to your Frank Woodward episode. Oh, nice. Wanted to ask you if Lovecraft Fear of the Unknown is yet available on Comedy Film Nerds. You know, not yet. We really want to. That documentary is an awesome documentary, and we really want to care. We're starting to carry more feature films as downloads, but he, uh, as he said on the show, it's still sort of tied up in some sort of distribution nonsense. So 
any any indie filmmakers out there, if you got a good feature film, we at Comedy Film Nerds will sell it as a download, and we give you a bigger piece of the pie than anybody else would. Oh, perfect. So, a marketplace. It's just like, why go through distributors and stuff? I mean, I did it with my film. I made a documentary called Afghanistan about the first time I did uh, stand-up comedy in Afghanistan for the military. And uh, I you know, took it around, tried to get traditional distribution with it. Most traditional distribution deals for indie filmmakers are, are shitty. Like, they're going to screw you. Right. Yeah. yeah. And everything's going download anyway. So we started doing it as a pay what you think is fair download on comedyfilmnerds.com. And it's been great. I just wanted to mention Lovecraft Fear of the Unknown because it might be of interest to a lot of our fans, uh, as some of our fans are also a fan of my Lovecraft-inspired rock band, The Darkest of the Hillside Thickets. So... <laughs> I happened to see that movie at the uh, Lovecraft Film Festival in Portland when it came out. It's awesome. And like, you know, hopefully we'll get the rights to it soon. And when that happens, I'll let you guys know and you can tell all your fans and you can sing about it in one of your ballads at your bar band show. (laughs) Will do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, should we get into the movies then, boys? Let's do it. it. Movie tragedies. All right. Word origin. Film comes from, uh, it's a colloquial term for a cinematic movie. Known as such because early movies were recorded on thin sheets of plastic made from the Celluloid Plastics Company of New Jersey that were treated with a thin film of photosensitive chemicals. No surprises there. Yeah, and the word tragedy comes from tragos and Aiden, which means he-goat singing. I thought they were like a comedy team from the 50s. Tragos and Aiden? (laughs) Tragos and Aiden. Tragos is Greek and Aiden is an Italian guy. They're from the Bronx. (laughs) Boom! Together... Together, they have a banjo, and one of them has a harpsichord. I don't know know what they did. It's the precursor to Goat Boy from Saturday Night Live and his partner, the opera singer. (laughs) It was the Goat Boy precursor, without a doubt. Yeah, scholars suspect this may be traced to a time when a goat was either a prize in a competition of choral dancing, or was that around which a chorus danced prior to the animal's ritual sacrifice. Ah, nice. Now you know. Right after they humped it. (laughs) Yeah, knowing is half the battle i just have this impression that ancient greeks humped everything that they had a chance to hump they were hump worthy or they thought everything was hump worthy isn't that true of modern canadians too like i (laughs) how is that different from regular everyday people don't humans just run around and screw everything that was my thought of any time and era (laughs) i mean i'm having sex right now as we're doing this show so it's and uh, theatrophobia is the fear of theaters. One of the things I sort of brought up at the beginning is this industrial workplace environment where you find yourself on film sets all the time with heavy machinery, like high-tension electricity, giant generators, and everything's got to move at a pace that is not safe. Like when you're driving a forklift in a warehouse, everything's nailed down. Right. On a film set, everything's on wheels and actually made to move. And shaky. And shaky and not so stable. And uh, you've got crazy stunt men and directors screaming at people and uh, it's just not a workplace environment that lends itself to safety per se in fact <laughs> i'm surprised more accidents don't happen on an annual basis do you think there are more accidents during the golden hour than any other time of day oh because they're all racing to get it in before night falls yeah exactly uh, for those of us who don't know out there any of the listeners the uh, uh magic hour or golden hour is that last hour between daylight and nighttime when the sunset is particularly gorgeous and it has this golden hue that every director of photography in the world loves it makes everybody look good well i think too the other thing to bring up with regard to the difference between like a warehouse setting and a film set 
is everything's changing on a film set, even if they have nailed everything down. But then there's, it's, it's this constant flow and there's always this like ticking clock of money being spent. Yeah. You know, it's not people just coming into a factory and doing the same job every day and punching a time clock and working a forklift. It's, it's all this thing. And it's, a, I mean, there's all these construction people, depending on how elaborate the movie is, if they're building things and the crane, the dolly stuff, if they're doing a lot of tracking shots and you're setting up and taking down like almost on a daily basis, even within the day, if you're changing shots. So there's all this stuff happening. There's this constant movement going on. At a warehouse job, it's relatively infrequently that somebody sets a propane bomb. Yeah, and I don't know <laughs> Sticks a propane many bomb in the lunchroom and then goes, yeah. all right, scatter everybody. This is going to work. I know it. We got to get this done before we lose daylight. <laughs> yeah, we got to make this car jump through a building. Let's go. <laughs> so yeah, you're doing all these stunts and you're using firearms and everything. It's crazy. I shot a short film. Uh, it was based on a character I was doing called Detective Kent Stryker, which was just like a parody of 70s cop shows. And we shot a little nice. short film. God, almost 10 years ago. We had prop guns and we had a gun that just shot like a little flash and it made very little noise. But we went through this whole safety thing from mm-hmm. the gun guy. Yeah, well. And every film does that. But like you add in the fact that everyone's drunk. <laughs> Everyone's on coke. Everyone's has a sex addiction. You know what I mean? It's insane. Well, it's also one of those things, too, when you got like career uh, film crew members. I mean, we've all heard like a thousand safety meetings talk about all the gunfire on set and whatnot. And I'm sure it's just like being on a plane and like seeing the stewardess talk about the wave her arms. Yeah, wave her arms about the exit positions. Yeah. And it was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The fuck gun goes off. It's going to be loud. Blah, blah, blah. Let's move on. Right. Uh, Charlie Brown teacher. In the background. And even if everyone was paying attention to like the letter there's always a time thing it's like we gotta go we gotta move we gotta get this done we gotta get this shot and we gotta move we gotta move to the next shot like there's always that is constant on every film and tv set whether it's a huge budget or the smallest budget there's always a ticking clock and you worked 14 hours the day before i don't care how many safety conversations you have someone's gonna get tired and lazy and forgetful and well in 1924 on the set of oh. the Warrens of Virginia. In the Wayback Machine. In the Wayback Machine. Uh, November 30th, 1923, while working on location in San Antonio, Texas, on the film Warrens of Virginia, 24-year-old Martha Mansfield, I like the name, they liked the alliteration back then, was severely burned when a match, oh. which was tossed by another cast member, ignited her Civil War costume of hoop skirts and flimsy ruffles. Ugh. Oh, man. Mansfield Jeez. had actually finished her scene, so it feels like it might have been one of those slow burn things, like it sort of like just started to flicker. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, and she had retired to a nearby car when her clothing suddenly burst into flames. Oh, wow. Her neck and face were saved when leading man Wilfred Lytle threw his heavy overcoat over her, and the chauffeur of Mansfield's car was burned badly on his hands while trying to remove the burning clothing from the actress. Well, thank goodness for those 1920s Edward Gorey-esque giant coats. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think it speaks to a bigger issue of, uh, you know, smokers are uh, dangerous, filthy people. (laughs) Um, Throwing their... There are matches everywhere, lighting people on fire, throwing your cigarette butts on the ground. This is what happens. Is it wrong that I think to myself, oh, they didn't catch this on camera? <laughs>
Yeah. Yes, it is. No, nobody was YouTubing that in yeah. 1924? Uh, she was rushed to the hospital in nearby San Antonio where she died less than 24 hours later. Oh, wow. But at least they saved That's... her neck and face. And I'm sure the studio paid out tons of money <laughs> to her family in 1924 for the wrongful death What do you mean? We didn't hire any Mansfield actress. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Alliteration, that sounds made up. It's like Lois Lane. You just pulled some character out of a comic book to make up. <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> Nobody knows about her, do they? Nope. Don't soak your hoop skirts in gasoline, I think, is the lesson to learn here. Oh, that they was... were made of gasoline in those days. <laughs> gasoline-powered hoop skirt. Hey, man, non-gasoline-based hoop skirts are expensive. <laughs> like, we got to keep the budget down in these movies. No, no. Non-gasoline hoop skirts don't look like hoop skirts on camera. <laughs> oh, that's it. Right? Yeah, that's what it is. Just a few short years later, uh, we've got a tragedy on Noah's Ark from 1928. Well, that's ironic, wouldn't you think? Um, <laughs> what could possibly go wrong on Noah's yeah, Ark? During the flood of the millennia. Well, the director was a guy named Michael Curtis. A pair of every animals were horribly burned. <laughs> uh, the director was a guy named Michael Curtis, who is uh, best known for his directorial work on Casablanca. He took over filming for Noah's Ark that had been started by another director and determined to finish the film on time. He cut a few incredibly crucial corners when it came to the flood scene. Oh, oh boy. Oh, yeah, and I've seen footage of this. Oh, really? You it's have? On, it's on YouTube, yeah. Wow, there you go. Well, so you can find a link to this, obviously, on causticsodapodcast.com. So uh, Curtis decided that he didn't need to inform the actors that he would be spilling hundreds of gallons of water on them. Why would they need to know? You know, actors are just going to complain anyway, so well, why would they need to know that? In Curtis's defense. A good actor is ready for anything. <laughs> yes. Any amount of water. Good- or gasoline. You're going to go. Yeah, if your hoop skirt's soaked in gasoline or there's a giant flood coming, you should be ready to go. Improvise. In Curtis's defense, I mean, maybe they should have read the script. There is a flood in this movie. <laughs> Wait a minute. There's a flood in the Noah's Ark movie? Oh, what? Just because they didn't know it was coming at this particular moment, they must have known it was coming eventually. I mean, at some point. You probably had a bunch of guys just off set with hoses running pretty much nonstop for like a couple of days beforehand. They must have known something was in the, in the, uh, in the offing. Uh, so when the cinematographer Hal Moore asked Curtis what would happen to all the extras, to which Curtis replied famously, Oh, they're going to have to take their chances. <laughs> <laughs> wow. No wonder extras like, want to be called background performers, they want an ounce of respect. Because they weren't getting it on Noah's Ark, that's for goddamn sure. These people are yeah, extra. <laughs> that's right. Just, if we lose them, it doesn't matter, because they're extra. They don't even have real names. Just set them on fire and hose them down, and who cares? Oh, Just, what, you can set them on fire and then d- dump water on them. This is a uh, perfect one-two punch and keep the cameras rolling. I call this one smashy. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he's just sort of some sort of Travis Bickle approach to it. Just like someday a real rain will come and wash all the background off the streets. <laughs> nice. You like that? That's nice a film reference, kids. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, the DOP more pointed out that they could do almost the exact same scene with miniatures and overlays and be almost as realistic. But Curtis insisted on doing it this way. Almost as realistic. Yeah. The almost is probably what steered him away from this conclusion, obviously. Wouldn't be any cheaper, though. And that's the important part. Well, as a result of the uh, oncoming flood, 15 cameramen and countless extras were knocked into the water and thrashed about for hours. Oh, those so, cameramen are expensive, though. <laughs> hours! They had to know that the Save flood the was camera. coming. Save yeah. the camera! Save the camera! You just see all these cameras like on hands with heads below water, but yeah, the cameras yeah, yeah. are being hoisted above sea level. For any, Well, if they were half-decent cameramen, anyway. 
one of the leading ladies caught pneumonia. One of the actors broke two ribs. And according to one of the stuntmen in the scene, three extras drowned and one had to have their leg amputated. Ooh. Oh, man. That yeah, is there was horrifying. Giant rocks and everything in, this, in these scenes as well. That oh, were like yeah. Tumbling to columns that are tumbling down and whatnot. <laughs> uh, the director of photography, Moore, later said about Curtis when he was asked, that goddamn murderous bastard never should have permitted a thing like that to happen. Wow. So, uh, you know, that was one man's opinion. <laughs> Boy, he just really threw his buddy under the arc, so to speak. Well, uh, yeah, I think that if they were buddies prior to this, I think Moore drew a line at drowning extras. Yeah. He did fine. He went on to do a whole bunch of Errol Flynn movies. Casablanca. Yeah. Arguably one of the greatest American films of all time. Yeah, and he only killed, like, one person on that movie. Mm, not enough floods for me. <laughs> yeah, but he strangled that hooker with his bare hands. So, you know, I mean... Uh... Casablanca definitely needed more flooding. That's my one problem with Casablanca. Not enough floods in the North African desert. <laughs> Come on, it's just about being interesting. Yeah, you're right. Uh, it's a little thing called drama, Graham. <laughs> you're right. Anytime, anytime you're in a dead spot, just flood it up. <laughs> just flood it up a bit. Okay, extras, some things are going to happen. we just like you to react naturally. (laughs) 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 All right, let's move to 1931 on The Wizard of Oz. Uh, The Technicolor process was expensive and time-consuming, so to cut costs, the producers pushed the actors through 16-hour days, six days a week, on brightly lit sound stages that quickly reached more than 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, That's hot for all you Canadian and uh, foreign (laughs) listeners out there. That's effing hot. The aluminum powder makeup used for the Tin Man almost killed the first actor cast on the role. An allergic reaction gave him breathing problems and horrible body cramps that made him wake up at night screaming in panic. But the studio heads didn't really believe anything was wrong until they saw him lying on a bed connected to an artificial lung. I uh, I actually know a little bit about this. The original Tin Man makeup was actually a powder, and they would like take those giant powder poofs, right. and they would just poof the silver on him they like poof 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 and he would and it had like a big whiff yeah and had like silver nitrate in it or something to give it the sheen (laughs) and uh and he would breathe in these clouds of particulate and it like tore his lung to shreds because he was allergic yeah yeah other people probably wouldn't be very good you know he'd probably be coughing for a few days but this guy also was allergic to the substance yeah. And gets it into his lungs. Yeah, like, I mean, you read reports about it after the fact where, you know, all his friends and family, like, he was never the same again. He didn't even get the benefit because he, he only lasted, like, a week or two on the show. Yeah. So he didn't even get the benefit of becoming famous for being in Wizard of the the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, they recast the, cha- the part, changed the makeup to something less dangerous, which then infected the eye of the new actor. So there's that. <laughs> the Wicked Witch had it pretty rough, too. Her makeup was so heavy that for 16 hours a day, she could eat only through a straw. In an early scene, the filmmakers made fire erupt from the ground to conceal the witch's exit as she was lowered by an elevator, but the mechanism jammed and she caught on fire. Oh, Michael Jackson-esque. The actress insisted on a stump double for the next scene involving pyrotechnics. Yeah, but then the, the stump, stump double, double caught was on also fire. Badly burned. <laughs> oh, no. So, good call. Good call on the actress part. How were they at the rap party? The stunt doubles just looking over at the at the actor. <laughs> no, I, I think the stunt double should be like looking over at the pyrotechnics guy and going, <laughs> you motherfucker, you goddamn. That wasn't in the script. I'm melting. I'm melting. <laughs> that was ad-libbed. That was totally ad-libbed. <laughs> Let's use it. Let's use it. What a world. 
they had no idea what they were doing in the early movie days. They were just setting people on fire and painting them with gasoline and iron and it's horrifying. Yeah, the later stuff seems to be like, oh They're no, this went wrong. Yeah. Like, oops, oh my goodness, all our safety procedures have gone wrong and this horrible th- tragedy happened. And the earlier ones all seem to be, eh, you know. What's a safety procedure? <laughs> Lots of people <laughs> yeah, want to be in movies, like... so that you just take the risks. Ah, don't be a Sally. Try to catch this bullet with your teeth, you know? Like, <laughs> if you do it, you'll be famous. Yeah, kid, this is how you got it. You got to have a little moxie to work in pictures. <laughs> All you have to do is call someone a Sally, and they're like, I'll do it. I'll do it, boss. You know it. I'll do anything you want to be in the picture game. I'm going to impress that that uh, tomato with the gla- with the gans. <laughs> yeah, that night dish will think I'm special. Sure she will. I'll catch this bullet with my both my teeth. I got a plug nickel for, uh, for a I newspaper. Got- <laughs> Uh, well, in the slightly more modern era, we've got The Conqueror from 1955, which had nothing to do with safety procedures. <laughs> I haven't seen this, but the shots of John Wayne in this that I've seen are hilarious. Okay, none of us have seen this except for Graham. Graham, film review in three sentences of The Conqueror, go. Well, first of all, you got to understand what John Wayne what he was all about. You know what I mean? Like oh, yeah? John Wayne was uh, everything he did. He had to be a big, tough, badass and everything. But this one, they have him. He, he's Asian. Yeah. He plays which Genghis is a, Khan, doesn't he? In a jaunty tunic. <laughs> You're right. He does become Genghis Khan. It's like Genghis Khan early years. So I guess Genghis Khan in the early years was a white guy. Uh, <laughs> well, he did have very squinty <laughs> eyes, just generally yeah, speaking. He just squinted a lot. And uh, yeah, Howard Hughes was behind this movie and it is so preposterous on so many levels. <laughs> it's like when John Wayne did uh, the Green Berets in the 70s. Okay. Like amidst all of this anti-war Vietnam and the whole controversy in America about the Vietnam War. He makes the Green Berets, which was a World War II war movie with the fun-loving backdrop of uh, Vietnam. You know, like, it's so... He just had this... Yeah, so inappropriate. It's unbelievable, because it's like, yeah, we gotta do this one for Migsy, or whatever, and it's like, really? Is that how they talked in the, the 72 in the bush? You know what I mean? Like, Maybe we could coin a new phrase for, like, a John Wayne inappropriate movie, like Wayne-appropriate or something. It's totally Wayne-appropriate. And the thing I love about this stuff in the 50s... Nobody went, what? You're going to have a white guy play Genghis Khan? Like, nobody said... In Breakfast for Tiffany's, Breakfast at oh. Tiffany's, you know, you've got uh, Mickey Rooney playing the yeah. incredibly racist upstairs neighbor. Well, this is the pre-Roddenberry oh, so- era, so... <laughs> Yeah, it is. It is. That's a good point. Wow. So uh, The Conqueror, this uh, John Wayne masterpiece from 1955, was uh, was shot in the Candylands around the Utah town of St. George. Did you say Candylands? I think I said Canyonlands. No, I heard Candylands. (laughs) So they still shot it in, like, Monument Valley in Utah. Like, that's where he did, like, John Ford and Howard Hawks and all those John Wayne movies, westerns, were always shot in that part. And they still shot it there. It's just like, they must have used the same horses and the same guns. (laughs) And they just like, here, Johnny, squint it it up and get him a robe. Yeah, this will be a great picture. I remember the sitting rock from the searchers. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, exactly. Uh, some of the fun stuff that happened in the course of filming, uh, where they regularly reached 120 degrees Fahrenheit heat, That's which again, for international listeners, is fucking hot. Uh, a, a Black Panther attempted to take a bite out of Susan Hayward. Oh. And a flash flood at one point just missed wiping everybody out. What is with the flooding? Stop it. But this isn't even the worst of it all. The worst part was... 
Uh, this was shot in 1954, and in 1953, the military had tested 11 atomic bombs at Yucca Flats, Nevada, which in- resulted in immense clouds of fallout floating downwind, and much of the deadly dust funneled into Snow Canyon, where a lot of the Conqueror was shot. Why is it snowing in the desert? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wh- why do they call it Snow Canyon in the first place? Maybe because of the, uh, the, the, the atomic fallout. fallout. The thin yeah. layer of fallout and everything. They had a little miniature nuclear winter there. The, what he made it even worse was that Howard Hughes later shipped 60 tons of the dirt, the quote-unquote hot dirt, from the actual location back to Hollywood to use on set for retakes, oh, wow. thus making it even worse. Wow. Now, they couldn't find dirt in and around L.A. Well, that they could have the used. the same color and the same Geiger counter reaction. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Same amount of rads. Yeah, Howard Hughes, uh, yeah, a little crazy. Yeah. yeah. He's a little nuts. Nutty Trucking billionaire. 60 tons of dirt from have Utah. The cons- have the conspiracy theorists grabbed onto this? Oh, well, bring it back because it matches the color. That's just what they want you to think. <laughs> this was yeah. an experiment by the government to test fallout on the population of Hollywood. Well, here's the thing. <laughs> the craziest part about this story, because I'm sitting here reading it thinking to myself, okay, so they just had no idea. So later on when people's hair started to fall out and everybody started to get cancer and the whole nine yards i'm like oh no they only figured it out in retrospect but in fact as they were shooting the crew and cast were painfully aware of it in fact they would play little jokes with each other and walk around with geiger counters to see where the most radioactive right. parts of set were nice <laughs> isn't that funny so fun what a fun game to play <laughs> hey john your cast chair is on the most radioactive spot in the whole valley <laughs> What playful fun. Oh, God. <laughs> and uh, Susan Hayward, by the way, was this red-haired woman who, in this plot, she falls in love with the John Wayne Genghis Khan. The hot blonde, a hot redhead? In, uh... Yeah, there's a lot of hot redheads in, uh, in you know, 13th century Mongolia or whatever. Like, that's that's totally where they were. But by the end of the yeah. shoe, they were, it was a glowing red. <laughs> yeah, she was so glowing. She was just wonderful. Maybe that's where Genghis Khan got his power from the gamma radiation like the Hulk. <laughs> Don't make Genghis angry. Genghis will conquer the world. Uh, actor Pedro Armendariz developed cancer of the kidney only four years after the movie was completed and later shot himself and learned his condition was terminal. In all, 93 members of the cast and crew contracted cancer, including John Wayne, who died from it. Well, at least it had a happy I, ending. Well, <laughs> wow, it's like, that's, that's so horrifying on every level. Howard Hughes withdrew The Conqueror from circulation, and for years thereafter, oh, the only right. person who saw it was Hughes himself. Yeah, he would screen it night after night yeah, for himself. During when his he was like, final years. Sequestered in that hotel room or whatever it was. So it never even saw the light of day. Well, I mean, it eventually did, obviously, but for years and years and years, it never saw the light of day so just uh, that number you had the 93 cancers out of that group of people uh, a doctor commented that out of a group that size you'd expect about 30 just, okay. so just naturally to get just cancer. naturally because you know people get cancer and there's lots so of them smokers and stuff. so three times as high interesting in non-film related uh, side note uh over half of the population of the town of saint george protracted cancer in the next 30 years wow that's a nearby town I guess. that that's the town just oh. outside of uh, the right. valley where they shot but now we know Right, we're not gonna we're not gonna go dumping anything dangerous anywhere ever again. I would certainly find it hard to believe that anybody would walk around set with Geiger counters, chuckling to themselves about how radioactive the set is. Well, human beings, if nothing else, learn from their mistakes. So that's why the world is in such a fine state right now. All right, well, let's go to 1969. 
and shark. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> shark <Sorry>. exclamation point. <laughs> I, I love any movie that ends with an exclamation point. Yeah, it's just because it's like the movie poster is yelling at you as you walk by. Shark. <laughs> See, you get startled. You start looking around. Look yeah. there. Oh, sorry. Just like that movie. Look behind you. <laughs> Would be a good movie, actually. <laughs> Uh, so during production, one of the film's stuntmen was attacked and killed on camera by what was supposed to be a sedated shark. <laughs> oh, what genius had that? Just yeah. give him, just give him a sedative. <laughs> like that's what they always used to say in those old. What's the movies. dose? Um, uh, Sharkish. This much. I, I sang two lullabies. <laughs> that's right. Yes, I rubbed yes. him on his belly. <laughs> it's a homeopathic. <laughs> I gave him a cognac. That always settles me down when I've had a long day of Geiger countering. I like the fact they all thought it was a good idea to have a man in a tank with a sedated shark, too, right? Like, what's the best case scenario? That you got this kind of limp, floaty shark that the guy's kind of just near? Like, I mean, if you have a shark and a human, it, it seems to me you would want them to interact in some way, shape, or form. That would be more interesting on camera. It's just astounding to me. When I hear that, it's like when I hear people that own, like, tigers or deadly snakes, and they're just like, What could this, possibly this, this. go wrong? <laughs> How could this be wrong? How could a thing whose sole purpose is to participate in the food chain through killing yeah. how could that ever harm me or anyone else like, i do like the term apex predator it is I, one of my favorite terms of all time i love oh. my python but where is my baby i don't understand this tiger when it was young we used to play with it it got older it got so mean yeah because it's learning how to kill from playing all those video games that's why yeah yeah that's what happened and probably watching ellen the gays made it fucking evil what that makes no sense uh, well we've mentioned grizzly man in our bears episode so we don't need to go through that right. one again but back to shark, shark. exclamation yeah originally it was titled uh kane after the main character in the movie played by burt reynolds Okay, shark is a better title. Shark exclamation is a better title After than Kane. Mm-hmm. happened, when the production company used the death to promote the film and retitled the film to Shark, the director, nice. uh, who had been arguing with the producers on several major issues relating to the film, quit the production. You know, when you're trying to capitalize on somebody's death commercially, it sort of seems distasteful. Yeah, you can see the poster. The tagline is, a realistic film became too real. Yeah. That's horrible. Now, you've you seen this movie, Graham? Uh, I've seen parts of it because <laughs> I'm a huge uh, Burt Reynolds fan. <laughs> so you just watch uh, the Burt Reynolds part and fast forward to the non-Burt Reynolds part? I just want to see his burly chest and find out where the man died. Um, it's one of those classic – it's it's the start of the of the disaster movies that started and the creature features. It was sort of in that mix. What, what year did it come out again? 69. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. The year of the moon landing. What? Um, so, Sexy. Yeah. Get on that moon. Um, the thing about it that you got to understand was it's like it was a movie that was sort of trapped between two worlds in the sense that it you had all the the, the creature features from the 50s. Right. Creatures from the Black Lagoon, Dracula, and all that. And then it was in the 60s. So it was late 60s. So you were starting to get this, you know, things are coming undone and society's unraveled and stuff like that. And man's trying to control the society. So it was like. It was man versus nature. Everything was. Yeah, yeah. And it had to have some dumb social commentary. That's the other Mm. thing. They always felt like, oh, we got to put a social commentary in it because everybody, that's in everything or whatever. And it's it's the 60s, man. (laughs) So it, it was really caught between the, t- the the two worlds and it there's all these things that just don't make any sense and then the fact that they redid it to where 
you know, oh, this guy died. Here's a way to cash in. Yeah. It's just like watching the movie, knowing that the producers changed the title and a guy died from getting eaten by a goddamn shark. You're just like, what? Some like, would how- probably refer to that as crass. Yeah, it is. Such and, I, crass. and I couldn't find the name of the stuntman anywhere. It's not like there is like any kind of memorial. In memoriam or, yeah. or you know, in loving memory of uh, maybe his name was Shark Food. Chum. Yeah, it's just chum. Because the movie is more about Burt Reynolds. Burt Reynolds was just breaking onto the scene as this sort of badass. You know, he yeah. had that TV show, Dan August. And so he's this gun runner and he's got to get stuff from shark infested waters. You know what I mean? And then sharks were not like the point of the film. They no, just they happened weren't the to point be in of the it. film. Oh. But then when this guy died, then they tried to put in more footage to make it the point of the right. film, to make it more of a horror creature film. Thing, and it's just like, oh my god! You know what's always a good idea is when you try and make your movie in editing. That's always a super <laughs> good idea. A, that totally works every time. No one has ever made a bad movie doing that. I can just see the flip flop in Burt Reynolds' opinion on this. At first, he thinks he's the star of this movie and it's great, and then they're like, "Well, now that the guy died, we're making the shark the star." So Burt, <laughs> yes. and he's probably pissed off. And then the movie's terrible, so he's happy again. Yeah, <laughs> oh, it'd, be like if they, it'd be like if they changed the name of the crow to Bad Gun. You know what I mean? Like, be like, what an awful idea. All right, well, let's talk about Troy, 2004. I really enjoyed this movie. I like it a lot. In the movie, ironically, uh-huh. during the filming, Brad Pitt, who plays Achilles, had a mishap and tore his left Achilles tendon. <gasps> The production was cursed. It was cursed. <laughs> wah, wah, wah. Now my conspiracy sense is tingling. <laughs> yeah. Really? So, so why didn't they change the title of the movie to Brad's Brad's Got a Bum Heel? Yeah. Like, why didn't Insane. they do that? I think yeah. it would have helped. No, them tendon go. exclamation. Tendon. Tendon. <laughs> tendon. <laughs> it's the part of your foot that won't let you go. <laughs> Uh, but the worst was yet to come when George Camilleri, a bodybuilder who worked as an extra, suffered an horrific leg wound after jumping off a galleon as it approached the beach. Mm. Camilleri was rushed to hospital where metal pins were inserted into his leg uh, before he discharged himself to go home. That's well, always a good idea, discharging now, yourself when you've got sure. multiple pins put in your leg. <laughs> now, during this time, Brad Pitt did go to his place quite often and play poker and gave him a, like a TV set and a DVD player and a so they were of films to amuse himself. Don't yeah. you just want to hate him and you can't? Yeah, I know. God, that guy. Two weeks later, he had a heart attack caused from a blood clot in the leg. Oh, no. He oh. recovered. But then he had another heart attack from the blood clot in the leg oh, and died. Oof. But the worst part was Brad claimed that the filming was torturous for him due to the fact that he had to quit smoking. Oh. <laughs> so let's all remember that and take, have a moment of silence. Yeah. This, this actually, this reminds me of a movie that I worked on. I worked on the second Underworld movie, Underworld Evolution. And uh, we were shooting up on a mountain. Uh, for all anybody who's seen it, the opening sequence, which is kind of back in time where all the vampires show up on horseback to wipe out a bunch of lichens that are hiding out in this small village. Lichens? Is it like mold? <laughs> I know. I always wondered about that word that they chose. Yeah, not uh, not L I C H L Y C N T. Oh, okay. What's Kate Beckinsale like? Is she nice? Kate Beckinsale is the most beautiful woman you've ever seen in person. She puts the Beckin in Beckinsale. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> I uh, I mean, I've worked with like big stars of just about every variety, and uh, I got like total mush mouth when I met her the first time. I actually went uh, 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 when she got out of the car and said good morning to me, and I, my heart went a little pitter-patter. 
But was she mm. nice, though? Was she pleasant? Yeah, no, she is an absolute sweetheart. And she, she doesn't seem old enough to have a child as old. Like, her daughter at the time was like 10 years old or something like that. What? Yeah. I didn't even know she was married. She was married to a cameraman and then did uh, the first Underworld movie and left her cameraman husband for the director, Len Wiseman. Mm. A little onset love triangle. Can you imagine being the cameraman working on the movie and then your wife cheats on you with the director and then like yeah. leaves you midstream? And the director's like, yeah, move that camera. Like, <laughs> focus. Okay, I want you to zoom in on your wife's sweet, sweet ass <laughs> that I was totally tapping five minutes ago. But um, uh, she wasn't on set the day that Let's get to the accident. we were shooting up on this mountainside where we'd built this little village. And uh, right before we started shooting, an ice storm came in. So it was like it wasn't quite cold enough to freeze in the air and turn into snow. So it came down as rain. But then like as it got darker into the night, it got colder and colder. So all the rain on everything turned into uh. solid ice. So people were just slipping and falling. And there were these giant like ice bombs falling out of trees, like 30-pound packed ice and snow is that how she had this affair oh i slipped and <laughs> fell into the director's bedroom ah what a crazy mishap oh my face landed in the crotch <laughs> oh no i slipped and all my clothes came off what do we do <laughs> but uh, one of the actors had to in the scene had to ride up on this horse and then kind of dismount and he was an expert horseman so he would just kind of like like almost fling himself off the saddle but he came down on one of these patches of ice and got a spiral fracture in his Ooh. leg Oh. Spiral what fracture. What does that mean, a spiral fracture? It's a really bad one. It goes... <laughs> yeah, it's not swirling. Yeah. It's not like a straight line across your bone. Your bone kind of like... Oh, it screws. Yeah. Like your bone looks like a screw with the uh, the like ridges in it all the way up. just screw it back together then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we're sorry that your foot was pointing in the wrong direction when we were done. But yeah. that's so and they were going to rename the movie Corkscrew. <laughs> but, uh, they could do so that was the worst injury that night, but uh, it was so bad. We actually stopped filming because we had four different incidents with four ambulances had to come to set in a single shooting day. And so they called it They're like We're and done. each ambulance was because of the ice was just crashing into the next one. It's just like it was a big bad chase scene. We had one ambulance leave, and like 10 minutes later, we called for another one, and they were trying to find an ambulance. They're like, wait, no, we already took this call. The ambulance just got, no, like, we need another one. They didn't oh. believe us. They're like, another ambulance? They're all out right now. Yeah, we need one for the paramedics in the first ambulance. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We need one for Kate Beckinsale's first marriage. But um, bum Ah, Graham Elwood, two shows tonight. <laughs> All right, so a movie that I have not seen, much to the chagrin of my brother, uh, Fitzcarraldo from 1982. I've seen Fine my fair share perfect. of Werner Herzog movies, but I haven't seen this one. But Graham, you've seen it. Yeah, a long time ago. It was, uh, you know, about this crazy boat. It was one of these movies, like, when video stores first hap- came on the scene and I was a kid, I think my friend and I rented it because we're like, oh, this sounds amazing. And it's this long, boring movie where guys <laughs> trying to put an opera house in a jungle. It's just, it's insane. And I remember just being like, it's all these Germans running around and stuff. It just, it's just, it's, it, it, guy's an obsessed opera lover. It didn't move you? didn't speak to you? <laughs> no, it's weird. It's weird that a guy that a rubber baron who has a love of opera wasn't like, yes, me at age seven would love this. Not or whatever. a rubber baron, like, a rubber baron. Rubber baron. Come on now. So in classic crazy German fashion, uh, the director, Werner Herzog, decided that in order to move this boat over a mountain, which was kind of one of the seminal plot points of the whole movie, 
instead of figuring out how to do it through film trickery and like putting it on winches and all the rest of that stuff, in order to maintain the realism of the movie, he needed his extras and his cast members to actually move an actual boat. Naturally. I feel like a flood death is coming. Oh, <laughs> song. The film production of Fitzgeraldo famously involved moving a 320-ton steamship over a hill without the use of any special effects. Herzog himself believed that no one had ever performed a similar feat in history. I think that's a fair thing to say. I think that's yeah, very fair. I think fair. it's good. You can say it. He called himself the conquistador of the useless. <laughs> and he had the t-shirt to prove it. <laughs> so he embraced his, uh, his futility moniker with great gusto, feels like. Uh, three similar-looking ships were bought for production and used in different scenes and locations, including scenes that were shot aboard the ship while it crashed through rapids, injuring three of the six people involved in the filming of that scene. So they actually Jesus. put a boat through rapids and then filmed on it instead of just, like, you know, rocking the camera yeah. or creating a set that you can gimbal or something like this. Something that pretty much every other, you know, filmmaker would probably do. How about you, Graham? If you were designing <laughs> a, a movie or surround a, a boat going through the rapids, would you just, like, put the actors in the boat and shoot them through the rapids? What do you think? Yeah, yeah. I would do what Werner Herzog did, and then if somebody died, I'd call it Crazy Boat. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. That's no. what I would do. I should rename the movie Crazy Boat. Fitzcarraldo's not going to sell any tickets. It sounds like some some weirdo old guy. You know what I mean? That like collects. Sounds like a weirdo old guy, right? He's like collects miniatures, and the kids in the neighborhood think he's a creep. Hey, you're describing my life. Watch it. <laughs> but wouldn't you go see Crazy Boat or Jungle Boat or or just boat 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 boat, boat. death boat. That's both. I don't have the details in here, but I know that one of the extras died in the course of the shooting of this film. So I know that there was at least one death involved in the shooting of this film. Did he die of a broken heart? <laughs> yes. Yeah, because he never made it over the hill. Uh, Jason Robards was actually originally cast in the title role, but became ill with dysentery after about 40% of the movie was complete. <laughs> and after leaving for treatment, was forbidden by his doctors to return to set. Herzog briefly considered casting Jack Nicholson or even playing Fitzcarraldo himself, but he eventually went back to, uh, you know, his, uh, his favorite. Went back to the well. Went yeah. back to the well, and Herzog uh, began a total reshoot with Klaus Kinski. Ah, uh, Klaus Kinski. Klaus Kinski, who was uh, such a raving maniac that the Amazonian natives that were being used as extras and crew member offered Herzog to kill Kinski <laughs> as a favor to him. Uh, to which Herzog replied that uh, he kind of needed him to finish the movie. But then you can kill him. <laughs> Those two are out of their minds. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you, oh, we've got one crazy German on set? Let's get two crazy Germans on set. <sighs> Germans better. are out of their minds. Have we learned nothing from history, folks? <laughs> well, they started two world wars, two of them. They did a genocide, and now they're dragging a boat up a mountain. What are these people? What is their problem? All he wanted to do was to pull a giant boat over a mountain. Well, the funny What is so wrong with that? <laughs> the funny part is, like, this is based on a true story, right? The funny part is the boat that the actual Fitzcarraldo hauled over the hill was a 30-ton boat, yeah. not the 320-ton yeah. boat that, uh, kin that Herzog wanted to pull over the hill. Well, a 30-ton boat it, doesn't show up well on camera. Yeah, yeah. 30-ton boats don't look like 30-ton boats on camera, yeah. right? Yeah. If you, I've been to Manaus, which is the capital of the Amazon in Brazil, and there is an opera house that was built in the 1800s, and I believe this is what yeah. it's about. It's amazing. It's a beautiful opera house. It sounds like an interesting story. Yeah, you're just like, why is there an opera house in the jungle? Oh, there's a crazy German. That's what's going on. Toucans need art, too. How about the movie, Graham? It's an insane movie. It's it's 
But there are some brilliant parts to it. It's not like Shark, which is a joke. Which is a, it's a, a Shark is great to watch. And it might be under the original title of Kane. Mm. That movie is hilarious to watch because it's so ridiculous. This actually is so intense. It's almost like watching uh, Heaven's Gate. Right. Heaven's Gate. Michael Cimino puts so much work and effort into it, and you can. And he, and he, it, you know, Werner Herzog is a good filmmaker. He's out yeah. of his mind, but he is a good filmmaker. So you see these brilliances in there, and then you're just like, what the fuck? You know, but I mean, it's a crazy true story that's made even crazier by the, the Werner Herzog and then the lunatic Klaus Kinski. I know of Fitzgeraldo as much or more because of the tragedies that occurred on set right. as the movie itself. Like right. the, the stuff that happened behind the scenes is more notorious than the actual movie. Like it's gained a level of fame irrespective of the kind of art that the movie itself provides. Okay, so I've got an idea for a brilliant movie. It's going to be a movie about Herzog. <laughs> and we're going to yes, go yes. even crazier. He made a 300-ton boat to do a 30-ton <laughs> boat. When we do the story of his life, it's mm. going to be a 3,000-ton boat in order to represent his 300-ton boat. An aircraft carrier up... <laughs> A mountain. That's what we're going to do for the Warner Herzog picture. I got the title. Herzog? With an exclamation point at the end of it. There you go. And his boss, the studio chief, will sound like a 70s cop chief. Herzog! Yeah. You know, yeah. he's always screaming at him. You're giving me an ulcer for your hot dog antics in the jungle. Klaus Kinski's constantly talking about it. He's only got a couple weeks left to work. Two weeks to yeah. retirement. Two weeks to retirement. Just bought Sorry. a boat. Wait, he's German. <laughs> Two weeks for retirement. I just bought a boat. It's going to be great. I'm going to do another Nosferatu movie. Everything <laughs> would be wonderful. And we just bought a U-boat. Yeah. There yeah. You go. Oh, shit. All right. Well, let's go to 1983 and Twilight Zone, the movie. I mean, this has got to be the most famous film tragedy Probably. of all time. I think yeah. so, yeah. In the early morning hours of July 23rd, 1982, Vic Morrow and two child actors, I won't even try to pronounce their names, uh, died in an accident while filming on location for Twilight Zone, the movie. Morrow was playing the role of Bill Connor, a racist who is taken back in time and placed in various situations where he would be a persecuted victim as a Jewish Holocaust victim, a black man about to be lynched by their clan, and a Vietnamese man about to be killed by U.S. soldiers, which is the scene that we're talking about. So Morrow, Lei, and Chen, are their last names, were filming a scene for the Vietnam sequence uh, in which the characters were attempting to escape from a pursuing U.S. Army helicopter out of a deserted Vietnamese village. Uh, the helicopter was hovering at about 25 feet above them when a pyrotechnic explosion damaged it and caused it to crash on top of them, killing all three instantly. Uh, Morrow was decapitated along with one of the child actors, and the other one was crushed to death. Uh, it's yeah. a tragedy. It's, just, it's so horrible. And, and the, the other story leading up to that was like John Landis, again, what we talked about at the top of the show, was pushing this crew. They were working like 20-hour days or something yeah. like that. And, and you know, Landis had to go on trial oh, because yeah. of negligence and, and all this stuff. And I remember seeing him speak at a film festival in the 90s. He's an interesting guy, but then he was like, said something like, oh, actors are a dime a dozen or whatever. And me and a friend of mine just looked at each other like, are you kidding me? Wow. Like That's kind of a dick thing to say. Yeah, you've murdered three of them. So yeah. I guess they are a dime a dozen. You know <laughs> what I mean? So. Like 3.6 cents right there then. Yeah. And I think that's, if you look at a consistent theme through all this, there is egomaniac directors who think that they're God or whatever yeah. and just are crazy. And they're just not thinking, that, oh, we got to do it because those make for great stories. Oh, the director 
fought the studio, you know, like Apocalypse Now. He went way over budget and everyone thought he was nuts and and it took two and a half years to make. It was supposed to take nine months or whatever. And, oh, it makes for a great story. And and here comes this masterpiece. So I think directors get caught up in that. Yeah, they Mm -hmm. start to believe their own hype, right? They just lose sight of the... I mean, if you watch a great documentary, Hearts of Darkness, a filmmaker's apocalypse, shows what what Coppola was doing. And and I think then Landis had done Animal House and stuff like that. And I think this was like, oh, this is going to be my... Your magnum opus or whatever, right? This is going to be my, my jump into being a real filmmaker. He pushed it too far too fast. Like, just didn't yeah. take the kind of right care and procedure. I, one of the things we always say on set whenever we do a safety meeting with uh, my business partners... No helicopter decapitations today? Uh, we, Not on my yeah. watch? No, that's how we start. That's okay. how we start. And we end it with, I don't like any of you enough to spend six months in court with you, so let's be <laughs> safe yeah yeah and you think about that and you know anyone involved is just like i can't imagine the regret in any of these movies of somebody just going if i would have just done something a little bit different a little we just would have said you know what well i'll take the heat from the studio we just got to take a day off or we got to cut the shoot day at 12 hours instead of 18 or what or maybe the helicopter can be 50 feet above the ground instead of 25 yeah why am i being so crazy like what's what is is any of this you're ultimately still just making a movie i've been in working in show business since i was 18 it's it's the only job i've ever had i have no marketable skills and uh i can tell you that the the degree, especially in LA, but I'm sure you've you've seen it working on pictures up in Vancouver. The degree of people who take themselves way too seriously, it's just like, you know what? We're just making entertainment. Yeah. That's it. And even if it has some sort of social message and can maybe affect change, hey, great. You know, the Harvey Milk movie with Sean Penn and Paul Blart Mall Cop are both selling popcorn. And yet, killed dozens of people on each of those productions, right? Like, there was an absolute bloodbath on milk. Paul Blart killed people's uh, intelligent senses of humor. Oh, okay. (laughs) It's been... Kevin James has been murdering people's brains for years. (laughs) But you know what I mean? Like, anytime... And I guess part of this comes from, like, having done shows in Iraq and Afghanistan and really seeing people put their lives on the line for real... And you come back and you work on a movie, and yeah, there's a lot of money involved, and there's pressure, and you got to deliver. And Mr. Elwood, did you just give us some perspective? I'm not 100 percent sure we're in favor of <laughs> yes. that on this production. Sorry, it's nothing. I it's nothing we've ever encouraged on the show before. Now <laughs> it feels like we're ending it. This is the you see to me part. This is this is you, Doogie Hauser, sitting down, and it seems like maybe comedy isn't worth death. <laughs> I've yeah. learned something maybe, today. Maybe silly movies that people see in multiplexes eating Twizzlers isn't worth a child's life. <laughs> or two, as the case may be. Do, 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 the more you know. <laughs> uh, <I'm- laughs> Another super famous uh, film tragedy, of course, is 1993's The Crow. Mm-hmm. Brandon Lee, shot by a uh, blank and uh, expiring as a result. An article from Martial Arts Illustrated describes the incident thusly. A few minutes before the fatal scene where Brandon Lee was shot, the actor Michael Massey, who played Fun Boy, pointed the actual 44 Magnum at Lee in order to save time. After these trial scenes, the prop master filled the Magnum with blanks, but forgot to check the barrel. Uh, apparently the arms master who job this was was away from set for the day oh that's a good idea let's not have the armor on set when we're going to shoot guns at our lead actor 
a few days earlier not having any such blanks, a DIY guy on set had emptied out real bullets to use in their place, and when fired, a light detonation due to the remainder of powder forced a piece of cartridge into the barrel, blocking it. As nobody took the trouble to check and clean the gun, it was in this state that the forty four Magnum came to be used in the scene. The cameras started rolling. Michael Massey took up his position a short distance away. Too short, as all the professionals will tell you, as a blank fired at a few meters can cause serious damage. Added to this, Michael Massey, off balance, fired right at Brandon instead of aiming just above their shoulders. I mean, that's industry standard. Like, even when yeah, you're firing yeah. in the direction of, you know, extras or other stuntmen or whatever, you, you, you can never tell on camera if they're firing directly right. at them or not. You, you always fire over their head or to one side of them or the other. Right. Because from camera's perspective, nine times out of ten, you're shooting, like, over the gun onto the receiver of the bullets. And, you know, that angle is – it's got a really wide degree that you can turn it. And it still naturally looks like you're shooting in the direction. Unless you're Werner Herzog. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. In which case, you have to actually shoot real bullets at them and they've got to, they've got yes. to dodge. Yeah. <laughs> So when the shot was fired, the sound was deafening. The powder from the blank violently thrust the cartridge in Brandon Lee's direction. As planned, the star pushed at that instant, the button on the detonator releasing the blood sack he was wearing. Seriously injured as the scene dictated, Brandon Lee drags himself along the floor while the actor David Patrick Kelly hurls abuse at him. As a result of the tension created by the scene, nobody suspected the accident as of yet. Wow. There was a general feeling that if Brandon Lee wasn't following the plan precisely, it was due to the fact that he was a great actor, that he improvised. Less than a minute later, everyone became aware of just how serious it was. So there was no, like, tap out. Signal, yeah, there was no safety word or anything, or anything yeah. like that. Yeah. It's like, I've been shot. I'm going to crawl over here and make well, groaning noises. Here's the thing. Like, the, probably one of the things that exacerbated it was because usually when you go to shoot somebody and you squib them all up, you do a specific shot for that because you don't want to do those shots too often. You'd want to only do a couple of takes of that because reloading those squibs take a lot of time, right? And again, time is money. You set up a lot of cameras and then you do the squib, the squib hit and then you're like, okay, everybody's okay. And then like you shoot just for that shot. From the description in here, it seems like they were playing out an entire scene like yeah. they were doing it in the wide Get or something shot, keep going yeah like right. keep performing after the squib hit because you're you're the crow you don't die right, right. you just you know keep going on and so that's probably made it worse because he's rolling around in agony dragging himself across the table when he's actually been shot that's instead of acting. instead of everybody saying hey are you okay and him going no i'm not okay I, I don't know. It just bums me that that story. And I mean, I knew we were going to talk about it, but like I was was and still am such a Bruce Lee fan. Mm-hmm. And when that happened, I was like, that is so horrible. And the fact that it is just a bunch of like like we you said earlier, it's a bunch of little mistakes that added up to right? so one big tragedy. Yeah, it isn't like a maniacal director or anything. It's just a bunch of little mix ups, you know, that created this horrible thing. And it was just like Heath Ledger or whatever. Like, yeah. what more could we have gotten out of? Brandon Lee as an actor. Yeah. Well, exactly. Like this, this movie would have made him huge because he was yeah. really good in it. Yeah, over and above the dying on set thing. Yeah, and then they have to complete it, a bunch of his scenes using CGI and doubles. doubles and yeah, and stuff yeah. Like that. it was his own spark. But he had that spark, like his, you know, his dad just had that thing. You right. know what I mean? Like, in addition to being an amazing martial artist, his dad just had that thing that on camera just he lit it up. Yeah, charisma. Certainly, the guy they got for the Crow Two Stairway to Heaven was not in the same stratosphere. Oh man, no. yeah, it's 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 not fair to that dude, whoever that is. You know what I mean? It's just like when Michael Chiklis played yeah. Belushi in, uh, <laughs> you know, in Wired. It's just unfair to whoever takes that job. 
Yeah, you no know, kidding. Uh, there was actually a couple other smaller tragedies on the set. Uh, on the first day of shooting, a carpenter was severely shocked and received serious burns when the scissor lift he was driving came into contact with high-voltage power lines. That happens more than anyone would care to admit. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, a disgruntled carpenter drove his car into the studio's plaster shop. Oh, <laughs> that's not that's not typical. What's, what was his problem with plaster? I just didn't <laughs> like it as, as a substance or... <laughs> yeah. We should be using more duct tape. Smash. <laughs> Fiberglass forever. I had a bad experience with plaster when I was 12. I hated paper mache in class. <laughs> Maybe his wife, a famous hot actress, left him on set for the plaster. She, she yeah, made plaster a, guy. She made a huge plastic dildo and was like, it's better than you. Oh, like, boy. Look, I mean, you can't deny it. And a worker was injured when a screwdriver was accidentally driven through his own hand. So all right, okay. Yeah. That stuff's got to happen all the time. Yeah, I'm that's always the thing. That was the other thing. stabbing things with a screwdriver. <laughs> when, like, the media was trying to make play up this, like, cursed set and the curse of Bruce Lee, and they were throwing in those things, I'm like, come on, man. Anywhere where there's construction, some guy's yeah. going to smash his thumb up. Any home that's ever been built, any set, anywhere, there's a guy that got got a nail through the leg or whatever because you know what I mean. That's yeah. Well, probably one of the most grievous injuries that I was ever party to, not that I was there, but that I knew most of the people who were involved in, was actually on the TV show Smallville. Uh Because there's lots of stunt work on Smallville Mm -hmm. because it's action-oriented, right? For the first, like, six or seven years of the show, the same guy was Tom Welling's stunt double, and he was also the stunt coordinator for the show. There was a, a bit that they did all the time where they put a lift up and they, they put a wire on the end of it. They'd measure it out and do all the weight and all the rest of that stuff. And they'd, they, he'd swing in as if he's flying into the spot and then he would like land, you know, all done with, with wires and cables, right? Uh, something happened. Either the buckle gave way or the wire snapped or something. And this guy, instead of, instead of swinging into a really soft parabola and landing lightly on the ground, he basically fell from like six stories high and hit the Jesus. ground at full speed and yeah. basically broke every bone in one side oh. of his body. He broke his collarbone, his arm, his ribs, his leg, his face, like broke every bone on one side of his body. No, I'm okay. I'm okay. Cause that's the side he landed on. And he spent like six months in the hospital. Oh. The, the real kicker. Cause of course he's in the hospital. They have to hire another guy to mm-hmm. like take his place. He's way better. They didn't give him his job back when he got yeah. out of the hospital. Oh. No way. Yeah, they had a, uh, yeah, they went their separate ways. But here's that. a cheese basket. <laughs> you get one chance to screw up with us and that's it. <laughs> yeah. Sorry that our, that you ruined your, our cables. Well, I mean, these stunt guys People, get paid really well. I mean, there's do. no doubt and about it. And they get it. banged up. They get banged up. I mean, it happens. There's like, a reason that stunt guys get paid as well as they do, because this is exactly what happens. Because There's, I wouldn't do it. Yeah. <laughs> nobody in the right mind would do it. Well, I'll give you a snapshot of the mind of a stunt person. There's this uh, this stunt woman in town. She's very famous. Her name is Melissa Stubbs. She does motorcycle stunt doubling. She doubled for uh, like Alicia Silverstone in the Batman movie. And I hadn't seen her in a long time. And I saw her come out on a set to double on this one thing. I said, oh, hey, Melissa, I haven't seen you forever. You've been taking some time off or shooting some movie in Eastern Europe or what's been going on. She goes, oh, no, I kind of broke my ankle. And she pulled up her sock and it had this massive scar that went from about halfway up her shin all the way down on both sides of her foot to her toes. Oh. Like they had like peeled her foot open and reconstructed yeah. her ankle. Yeah, basically, I broke my ankle. Yeah. And she said, <laughs> yeah, I got it's her ankle. And she had something like 10 or 15 pins put in it. So it was a complete reconstruction. Like she had bars in it and everything like that. I went, how the hell did you do that? She said, well, I jumped off the third story of a parking garage into the cab of a moving pickup truck. 
that was driving on the ground floor. I looked at her. How is it possible that you thought you could do that and not break your ankle? And she looked at me and totally nonplussed. I thought I could do it. That is the mind of right. a stunt person. If you don't yeah. think like that, you cannot be a professional stunt person. If you don't look, yeah, you have to think that. You yeah. have to be a little crazy. If you don't look off the third story of that parking garage and go, I think I can do it, <laughs> then this is the wrong job for you. It's like a UFC fighter. Like, yeah, I'll go in a cage with another guy that's trying to kill me. Absolutely. Why, why wouldn't I do that? You know? They do it so we don't have to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. October. Recent news. 16 actors were injured on the set of Resident Evil Retribution filming in Toronto when the wheeled platform they were standing on shifted unexpectedly while they were moving to a different platform. The sudden movement caused them to fall about five feet, leading to various leg, back, and arm injuries. Okay. 12 people were transported to hospital, although none of the injuries are life-threatening. Emergency responders got a big shock when they first arrived on the scene. The injured actors were made up like zombies, creating the appearance of horrific wounds and making it difficult for emergency responders to initially assess the situation. That's awesome. Ambulance staff and firemen that attended the stage collapse scene in Toronto had to distinguish between the the actors' real injuries and the makeup and fake blood that is part of their Resident Evil 5 zombie costumes. Of course they do. Okay, I don't know who on set is responsible for this decision, but I know somebody was freaking out going, should I just get them to take their makeup off because it will be safe 
safer to find their injuries, <laughs> or should I save money and not have them do it? Well, <laughs> do I mean, I make the, yeah. who makes this decision? Oh my God, am I going to lose my job, or am I going to get sued if I don't make the right decision? You, you don't have the makeup people standing by to like jump on them and go get their makeup off before the ambulance gets here. Like it's not. I remember you know. putting that on him, but <laughs> right. I don't remember putting, putting that, that on him. It's like, you just have them stand there. Yeah, that's real. That's not real. That's real. That's not real. Latex paint. You know, I th- I think this guy's becoming a real zombie. I think we need to do something <laughs> yeah. about this guy. He's rolling around, holding his bag, going. Yeah, he's trying to bite my neck. I don't know why he's doing this. <laughs> the director comes in. He's like, "Get the camera on this. This is awesome. You can't pay for this." Why does this guy keep yelling brains? I don't get it. I don't know what's going on. There is some media that is about stuntmen and okay. and presumably film tragedy. Mm-hmm. For example, the Fall Guy. Oh yeah, yeah, the Fall Guy TV series. I don't Back remember in the any specific instances of film tragedy, but you have to assume how many how many seasons were there of the Fall Guy? From nineteen eighty one to nineteen eighty six. Five seasons. Five there seasons, hundred and twelve episodes. Wow. Syndication. Yeah. Somebody's banking fat cash. Although we don't see the Fall Guy on you, in I don't his remember seeing it getting repeated. It was yeah. almost like it just wasn't very good. <laughs> Heather Thomas <laughs> yeah, she was delicious. I think you mean hubba hubba. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the premise for those of our listeners who are maybe too young or not cultured enough to have seen the Fall Guy, <laughs> take that audience. Uh, Lee Majors plays a professional stuntman, and they get into a situation every episode where they have to like solve a mystery or a crime or a murder once a week. For once five a week years. for five years. <laughs> well, he, he moonlights as a bounty hunter. Yeah. Like yeah. that's that's his moonlighting job. Yeah. He's True just... enough. But uh, I'm sure one of the premises of one of 112 episodes has to be some stuntman is doing a stunt and yeah. dies. And then, you know, they, the rope is frayed or they, there's some, you know, the producer has his uh, life insurance policy out on him or something like that. And they have to unearth it. If some of our cultured listeners remember any instances, <laughs> please go to causticsodapodcast.com and comment. And I'm sure the the highfalutin cultured listeners that you guys have for your show are aware of the fact that Lee Majors also sang the theme song for Fall Guy. What? Is that true? Yes. That is Awesome. Oh, How does the theme song I, go? I Sing it for us. Been blown up by Welch. <laughs> that's him. He sang this theme song. Oh, I, nice. Okay, we got to find that. On, if we can find it on YouTube, that's going to be posted on the show notes. You have to. He's a triple threat entertainer. <laughs> triple threat. Lee Majors. Triple. What's the triple? What's the, What's third, the third one? one? The third threat is singing, acting, and uh, I don't know, being bionic, running, running fast <laughs> in slow motion, That's right? Going, <laughs> yeah, wearing a jumpsuit and looking cool. <laughs> yeah, that is definitely a threat. I, I, I use that threat all the time. <laughs> and That's fighting robot Sasquatch. Do these guys here? If you guys don't do what I want, I'm going to show up in my jumpsuit next time. Yeah, threat. My my white <laughs> shoes, and I'm going to jump over a chain link fence. <laughs> and then there's the stuntman from the '80s that film. 1980, to be precise. 1980. Peter O'Toole, great movie. I read the write-up on it on Wikipedia, where it kind of outlines the plot, and it sounds not good. And maybe it's because I haven't seen this movie in a long time, but I remember watching it at a drive-in theater when I was a kid, and it's 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 pretty cool. Like, the stunts that they do, and the safety stuff, and, you know, Peter O'Toole plays, again, he plays a maniacal director. Uh, you know, I would recommend this along with uh, Hooper, which is another stuntman movie where oh, Burt Reynolds okay. plays... Oh, coming uh, back to Burt. <laughs> back to my bad boy Burt, baby. back to Burt's chest. Is there any stuntman tragedies in Hooper? Does anybody die or get mangled or injured? He plays an older stuntman who's might have to retire. Brian Keith is his girlfriend's 
dad, who's also a stuntman, and a young Jan Michael Vincent, pre-alcoholism debacle Jan Michael Vincent, plays the young stuntman, and they're pushing each other. To go harder and faster and... Burt Reynolds is, am I, am I getting too old for this? And I would recommend, if you're into stuntmen, I would recommend... And who a, isn't? Uh, come on. <laughs> when you've got Pete O'Toole, and then you've got Burt Reynolds, and then you go Lee Majors from the TV show, that is three threats right there. <laughs> but Hooper and Stuntman are, are good movies. I wanted to mention one last thing. The real Ghostbusters episode. Take two. <laughs> written okay. by J. Michael Straczynski. Oh, okay. So got some comic nerd cred in there. Uh, the Ghostbusters nice. are hired as consultants on the movie of their life, namely Ghostbusters. Yeah. And they are flown to Hollywood to visit the set. Cut to a scene of some crew opening a giant trap door that hasn't been opened for 20 years since, quote unquote, the accident. Oh, my. Okay. Naturally, uh, there's a ghost. Of like a dead stuntman? Yeah. Uh, they don't specifically say it's a stuntman or who died or what the accident was. Right. But they have to fight the, the ghost. And the kicker is, after they get to the set, their proton packs were replaced by props. <laughs> oh, no. They have to use their guile to fight the ghost. Their guile. <laughs> hand so, to hand. I don't want to spoil anything too much, but there may be some sign language involved. Okay. So now, now did, did Ackroyd and Ramis, did they provide their own voices? At the end of the movie, they're at the premiere, the cartoon Ghostbusters watching the actual Ghostbusters movie live action. It's oh, kind of, okay. It's kind of weird and meta. Wow. Yeah, that is. It's sort of like inside the inside. And then Peter Venkman, the cartoon Peter Venkman says, he doesn't look a thing like me. <laughs> That's good comedy right there. Done and done. Let's do some uh, plugs. If you want any tour dates, if you just go to GrahamElwood.com. It's got my calendar, and it's got my Twitter and Facebook where I post upcoming shows as well. And it's also got a link to my podcast, Comedy Film Nerds. I recommend Comedy Film Nerds. It's very entertaining. Oh, thanks, guys. That's what We love doing it. It's just movies and being jackasses. It's good stuff. Um, we started to do more themed episodes. Uh. You know, it's a weekly podcast. We want to ultimately do two a week, and one would be a, like a current events episode, and one would just be like themed where we would talk about. Like we just had an episode that came out, episode 85 with Doug Benson, where we just talked about our favorite holiday movies oh yes i want i listened to that one yeah so we're gonna try to do more of those and um a lot of really funny well-known comics around the show and some and some excellent filmmakers so yeah you can get that at grandmella.com and also my documentary laughganistan uh, about the first time i went to afghanistan to do shows for the military is available through grandmella.com there's a link to it uh, you know, you can also go to laughganistan.com to see a trailer, and it's a pay what you think is fair download, so you can get it for as cheap as a penny. Now, how do you spell Laughganistan? L A F F G H A N I S T A N. Yes, joke spelling. <laughs> <laughs> we just, I just want people to see it. Marvelous. Awesome. Caustic Soda was recorded by Mike Leeson inside a small room, slowly filling with water. To comment on our episodes, make a donation, as well as videos, pictures, links, and to download Caustic Soda ringtones, visit causticsodapodcast.com. Rate and review us on iTunes. Visit us on Facebook. Email questions and comments to info at causticsodapodcast.com. So suffice to say, 